today's scripture is from Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. John Wooden was called the Wizard of Westwood, and he led his UCLA men's basketball team to 10 national championships. He had seven of those national championships in a row. John Wooden set records that may never be eclipsed uh, in college basketball from 1948 to 1975. He had a win-loss record of 885 to 203. That's a winning percentage of 81.3%. He had an 88-game winning streak at one point at UCLA. Players like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played for him, Bill Walton, Walt Hazard. He had 24 All-American players under his coaching. And when players came to UCLA and they gathered for the first day of practice, there was a lot of anticipation, as you can understand. What will this Hall of Fame coach do first thing? And they wondered how their coach, John Wooden, would set the tone. They didn't have to wait long. The veterans knew what was coming, but the first-year players were probably a little perplexed by the initial lesson imparted by their Hall of Fame coach. It was this. We're going to begin today by learning how to tie our shoes. That's how he started. And with that, he took a sock and he instructed his players how to put on a sock. He said, I want you to pull on your sock and you need to pull it tight. Pull it up from the bottom and stretch it out tight. Pull it up strong. He said, take your, your fingers and put it over your tiny toes and make sure that there's no wrinkles in your sock. Do the same thing under your heel. Make sure that that sock doesn't have any wrinkles. Because if your sock has wrinkles, you'll get blisters. And if you get blisters, I may have to pull you out of practice because you can't run up and down the court like you're supposed to. And if I pull you out of practice, then you're probably not going to get as much playing time as you need. You're not going to be aware of situations that you need to be aware of. And if I can't put you in in the game in the critical time when I need to put you in the game, we might lose. And it's because you didn't put your socks on right. Then he took a shoe and he said, I want you to make sure that that shoe is really wide and open. I want you to put your foot in it and pull the tongue so that it's not one side or the other. And don't just grab for the top of the laces. I want you to go to the bottom and eyelet by eyelet, I want you to firm up your laces so that they're strong and tie them at the top. And when you tie it at the top, make sure to double tie it. Because there's always a danger in basketball of your shoes coming untied. 
And if your shoe's untied, then I have to stop and I have to take you out of practice until you tie your shoes. The game has to stop for you to tie your shoes. And you have to be on the bench so that you can tie your shoes. And if you're on the bench because you're tying the shoes, you're not in the game. And I might need you in the game because it might be a critical time of the game. And if you're not in the game at the critical time, we may lose the game. Accounts say that John Wooden didn't teach this lesson just once. Some accounts say that he taught this lesson before every game and before every practice. I don't know if that's true. It's just what I've read. Now, we're beginning a series today from Galatians chapter 3 and 4. And the series title, as we just went through a few minutes ago, is Oh Dear Idiots. And there's a good reason for this, because in this text... Paul uses arguments to attempt to pry the Galatian Christians away from the ideas that have taken root among them because certain teachers have come in and begun to teach them that salvation is in Jesus, yes, but you have to add some things to Jesus. Salvation is in Jesus plus being a good Old Testament Jewish person, which means adhering to the Old Testament law and dietary restrictions and observing the Old Testament holy days. And because they've listened to this and believed it, Paul writes this letter to them. And when he gets to chapter 3, he employs a sharp tone. Paul calls these Galatian Christians foolish. It means mindless. It means unthinking. Our modern way to say it would exactly be what we've titled this series. Oh, dear idiots. It's like somebody from the South patting somebody on the head and saying, oh, bless your heart. That's the deal. It's an endearing backhanded slap designed to wake the Galatians up from their error because Paul will use an interesting word. He says, something has bewitched you. And this word bewitched is awesome. It's, it, Paul pulls it from the realm of magic and superstition. Because a popular belief in that day was that there was a certain magical evil eye that could cast some sort of spell on people. And when it did, it caused them to act strangely. Uh, I use this to think that maybe Paul would have been a Harry Potter fan, uh, right? If he was writing today. Of course, Paul doesn't hold to the superstition. But he uses this association with an ignorant superstition in order to shame his Galatian readers. It's as if this is the only reasonable explanation for their foolish actions. Paul says, surely, he has this in mind, surely you were not in your right mind when you followed the teacher's way of thinking and gave up on Jesus and his sacrifice for you as the only way to be right with God. Surely somebody had a magic wand. Maybe Voldemort was in front of you himself and was causing you to act this way, magically forcing you to do this. And the implication that Paul wants to make is clear that no one in their right mind would adopt the teacher's theology. You'd have to be an idiot to do that. Oh, dear idiots, he writes. And with that umbrella, Paul begins to lay out several arguments and reasons why the teacher's way to be right before God and this way that they're they're now trying to adopt as their own is the way of the idiot. And the very first of these arguments has to do with putting on socks and tying shoes. And just like the 
John Wooden, just like the Wizard of Westwood, Paul takes these Christians who think that they're veteran players, they think that they've got all the right moves, they think they've got all the figured out, they think that they're above basic instruction. I mean, they're at the point where they're just saying, just keep feeding me the ball and we'll win. And Paul says, wait a minute. Just like in basketball, there are fundamentals in Christianity that can never be ignored. And as a matter of fact, if we do get away from these kind of fundamentals in the name of maturity or in the name of advanced Christianity, then we are in danger of losing the very Christianity that we're trying to hold on to in the first place. And so Paul begins with the fundamentals. Don't ever abandon the fundamentals. Here's what they are. Let me recap it for you. When I came to you for the very first time, what I did was I preached Christ crucified. That was fundamental number one. Before your very eyes, this is the way I preached. Paul came in and he told these people who had never heard of Jesus a story. It was a story about the Son of God coming to the world, living a perfect life, dying on a cross in sacrifice for all men everywhere so that they could be right with God. And this story of Christ and the cross somewhere deep down connected and they understood this story. John Stott writes this, that the fascinating thing is Paul does not bring advice from Jesus. He doesn't preach that, but he brings news about Jesus. You see, the lead line of the gospel, the thing that we are to start with is not how to live, but what Christ has done for us on the cross. And you can track this line of thought in every one of Paul's letters. Galatians is a good example. The gospel always comes before the instruction. It's the gospel that takes up so much time in Paul's letter. Going back to the fundamentals, back to Christ crucified. Explaining the gospel. And the instructions don't come until the end of his letters. In Galatians, it won't come until chapter 5 and chapter 6. The gospel always announces to us what Christ has done before it ever directs or instructs us as to what to do. And the fundamental truth about Christianity is this. Christianity is not about what we do. Christianity is about what has already been done for us. That's a great elevator pitch, by the way. If you're ever in a situation where somebody's asking you to explain Christianity in 30 seconds or less, memorize that line. Christianity is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has already done for us. Christianity, Jesus on the cross, Christ crucified, that's what I preach to you, Paul says. And number two, not only did I preach that, but I preached it in a certain way. The fundamental number two was that I preached Christ clearly portrayed. Clearly portrayed. That's what the NIV says. The ESV says, I preached Christ and publicly portrayed him as crucified before your eyes. Portrayed means to put up on a placard or to put up a poster or to put up a banner and clearly or publicly, depending on what translation you're reading, means graphically. And so we can say this, Paul may have even drawn a picture of the crucifixion for these Christians who had never heard of Jesus, for these people who were to become Christians who had never heard of Jesus. 
Maybe he went so far as to employ a graphic artist to come in and draw a picture of the crucifixion because we can talk all day about Jesus hanging on a cross and crowns in his, uh, crown of thorn is in his head and nails in his hands and his feet and a spear in his side. We can talk all day about that, but a picture, a picture moves our hearts. And whether he sketched Golgotha or not for these people in Galatia, he was He presented a moving view of what Christ did for all men by dying on the cross. Christians aren't just people who know about what Jesus did. Christians are also people who have truly seen him on the cross and what he did for us. And so the fundamentals that Paul wants to remind the Galatian people of is I preach Christ crucified and that he was publicly portrayed. That's the core message of Christianity, and it's both rationally clear and it moves hearts that are open to it. And those are the fundamentals that the Galatians learned, and I preached, and here's what happened after I preached. You responded. You responded. Paul recounts their own conversion experience for them, and he does this in verses 2 and 3, and he does this very succinctly, and verses 2 and 3 are very repetitive on purpose. Paul reminds them that their journey that brought them to the saving work of Jesus was one of hearing and belief. He said, when you first came to Jesus and received the Spirit, why was that? Was it because you obeyed really well or because you heard what Jesus did for you and believed and trusted in his work? That's what verse 2 says. He says, no, it's not because you did something really well. It's because you responded to the message by hearing and believing. And verse 3 is the same song, different verse. If you began by the Spirit, hearing and believing, and being baptized for the forgiveness of the sin and and gift of the Holy Spirit, that's what Acts chapter 238 will tell us, and that's what surely was wrapped up in their conversion experience. If you began that way, by God doing the work of salvation in you at your baptism, then what makes you think you'll be better off now as you abandon the spirit that you were given and abandon the God who did his work of salvation in you and exchange that for trying to perfectly live up to the law in your own efforts? Oh, you've got to be foolish. Verses 2 and 3 are repetitive to make a point. The way you begin, dear idiots, is the way you continue. How ridiculous would it be of a basketball player to put on socks in the correct way and tie his shoes correctly and play a great first half only to go into the locker room at halftime and decide, you know what, I don't need socks anymore. I'm going to take those off. And I don't need to tie my shoes. I'm just going to let those flap in the wind. And they come out for the second half warm-ups with no socks and their shoelaces untied. Everybody would look at that and say, what are you doing? Do you really think that's going to help you Score more points in the second half, you dear idiot? Paul says the same thing. How did you begin with, how did you begin this journey? It was with Jesus. It wasn't by proving yourself. It was about, it was by hearing of what Jesus did so that you're proved in God's eyes already. And Paul won't stop there. In verses four and five, he takes another step and reminds them of what the Spirit does and who gives the Spirit and why he gives the Spirit. He says, the Spirit does miracles among you. The Spirit is the person that changes hearts towards Jesus. Oh, we can plant and water and we can create the right atmospheres and worship, but it's the Spirit that changes hearts towards Jesus. And God himself gives 
the Spirit. And Paul preached Christ crucified publicly and clearly portrayed. And the Galatians heard and listened and believed. And as a result of that belief and trust, they received the Spirit of God. God gives the Spirit to all those who have faith and belief. And the core message that Paul's trying to get across is, where are the works? You see, you didn't, you didn't receive the Spirit because you memorized the Bible. You didn't receive the Spirit because you obeyed the Ten Commandments really well. You didn't receive the Spirit because you decided to slice off a piece of your body and become circumcised to prove you belong to God. No, you received the Spirit when you came to God in faith and in trust. And your works were never part of the equation. But now, halfway across the river, you're trying to abandon ship you're trying to include your own efforts into the equation. It's like untying your shoes and it, at halftime and expecting to score more points. Do you really think that will help? That was his message. Now, before we get too proud of ourselves, the, we need to know that we are like these Galatian Christians in more ways than not. Every human wants a couple things. They want to be known and they want to be loved. Tim Keller will put it this way. He will say, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. Somebody might love us, but they don't know us fully, and that's really a superficial relationship. And that, that might be comforting for a while, but it's not really what we're after. We want to be fully known. But we also want to be fully loved. And he says, to be known but not loved is probably our greatest fear. To be known and not loved, that means somebody we've allowed into our heart so that they can see all the junk that's there and they decided, nope, you're not worthy of love anymore. That's probably our greatest fear. But to be fully known and at the same time fully loved, that's what we want more than anything. And the way these Galatian people tried to be known and loved before they became Christians was the same way that people try to accomplish that now. People everywhere, all around you, are trying to complete themselves on their own. They're trying to be known. They're trying to be known fully. And they're trying to be loved. And they're trying to be loved fully, even as they are known fully. And how do they accomplish that? Well, they look around and they say, you know what? Uh, if I could just get affection from other people, then maybe I can be fully known and fully loved. And affection requires good looks, and so I'm going to do everything that I can do to dress myself up and make myself look good. And it might require me to cross some lines and do some things that I wouldn't other do, but after all, I'm after affection, I'm after being loved, and so I'm going to be willing to cross some lines. Maybe they're after acceptance. And acceptance by others means that I do a respectable job and I have success in moving up the, the ladder. Acceptance by others means that I maintain rigid, rigidly whatever cultural standards are expected of me. And whatever it is that people are after, they do this. And, and this is what Paul is referring to when he says in verse 3, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The NIV reads it more simply. It just says, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort, by your own effort? Are you trying to complete yourself? Are you trying to be fully loved and fully known by yourself? Are you wanting 
to reach that reality by twisting and bending yourself into a shape that other people are calling for. And that's how they were living before they came to know Jesus. It's how most people live outside of Jesus, and it's how a lot of us live when we forget the gospel. And it's a never-ending hamster wheel of worry and stress, always having to run faster and to keep up, always contorting ourselves, twisting ourselves, bending ourselves, shaping ourselves into molds that we were never meant to fit into. And then comes Jesus. Jesus pops up and he says, do you want acceptance? Do you want approval? Do you want affection? Do you want to be fully known and fully loved all at the same time? You can have it because of what I've done. You can have it from God. And he's the one you were really trying to impress, whether you realize it or not, by doing all of those things that don't seem to be working really well. Jesus says, stop working. I've done the work for you. I've gained a right standing for you with God and with man. And all you need to do is accept and trust. And these Galatians, these dear idiots, they did believe. They radically changed. They abandoned their own efforts to be complete, to try to be right with the world and God, and believed instead in what God had done through Jesus. They believed that Jesus could complete them, and that's what faith is. That's what trust is. That's what belief is. It's abandoning our own efforts to attain our goal of being right with God and others, and instead trusting that Jesus, God's Son, our Savior, has accomplished this for us. Now, let me take a moment and point out that that may be different than what some of you were encouraged to do when you became a Christian. It is very common that people are taught when they, when they are introduced to Christ, they are taught to turn from sin, and then they are taught to try hard not to sin anymore. And that's what makes you a Christian. The problem with that is that you can do that without Jesus ever being a part of it. You're not going to be successful in it, but you can try it. Good luck with that. And Paul says, that's at the heart of the pagan system that you came out of, trying hard to be right with God by living up to certain standards. He says, that's the old way. That's the way you gave up when you followed Jesus. And true people, true converts to Christ repent. They repent by abandoning their works-based attempts to be right with God on their own, they trust and believe that Jesus' work on the cross has earned them favor in God's eyes, which is something they could never do on their own. And so have you repented of your human system and your human effort? These, these people in Galatia did. And the result of their belief, it's very clear here and in other parts of the New Testament, the result of their belief in Jesus is the receiving of the Spirit. And I think I can make a good case that the receiving of the Spirit happens at baptism. So Paul is saying this, here's what I preached, here's what you believed, and because you believed it, you received the Spirit. But now we have a problem. We're going backwards. You've come out of the locker room at halftime without socks and your shoelaces are flapping with every step. And for this, Paul calls them foolish and bewitched. Don't take your socks off, idiots. Keep them on. Dear idiots, trust in the Spirit for your completeness, 
not in yourself. Dick Kaufman writes this. He says, Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, and then we think that we grow by applying biblical principles to every area of our life. He says that's not quite accurate. He says we are not just saved by the gospel, but we grow by applying the gospel to every area of our life. I could rephrase it this way. The root of all of our disobedience, the root of uh, us getting off track is always an attempt to keep control of what we really love, what we really worship through systems of works righteousness. I will explain that. The way we progress is to continually repent and uproot these systems in the same way that we became Christians. We became Christians when we saw Jesus vividly depicted as crucified in order to save us, a sacrifice on a cross. We became Christians when we realized that Jesus had already done the work that we are trying to do in ourselves. We became Christians and we abandoned our self-trust and our feeble efforts to complete ourselves. And if that's how we started, then that's how we grow, by going back. We go back again and again to the reality of the gospel that Christ is crucified. And every day, our hearts are more deeply gripped by what he did for us and by who we are because of what he did for us. And that's the one lesson today. The way the Spirit entered your life is the same way the Spirit advances in your life. And if there is any such thing as advanced Christianity, it is that that we continually, daily, go back to the cross and trust that Jesus has won for us what we could never win for ourselves. Let me show you one way this works, okay? Let's just assume, hypothetically, that you're having a problem with anger. Nobody in the room, right? We, we, don't, we don't have problems with that. But just hypothetically, maybe you're angry at a person, Maybe you're angry at a group. Maybe you're angry at your circumstances. And let's assume, let's make another big assumption that you've recognized that it's a problem, which is a huge first hurdle for most of us, and most of us don't even get there. We don't even want to admit that we have an anger issue. But let's assume that we get there. How do we invite God into that? As uh, normally, here's the deal, we, we say, God... I'm having a problem with anger. I'm so mad right now. Would you please remove my anger by your power? Would you give me the ability to forgive? Would you just please take my anger away? And we stop there. But living in the Spirit, living in the knowledge of the gospel, always going back to the fundamentals of of Christ crucified calls us to do more. It calls us to apply the gospel to our situation. Paul would tell us that our anger and bitterness is not in line with the gospel. Do you remember chapter 2 when he opposed Peter? He said, Peter, what you're doing is not in line with the gospel. Every time we get off track, we can ask ourselves the same question. Where have I gotten offline with the gospel? Our anger is persisting because in some corner of our heart, we have replaced Jesus with a savior of some other sort, some functional savior that will substitute for peace and joy 
and happiness. We're looking for something else to give us those things. And when that something else doesn't deliver, we get angry. We get mad. That's what we have to get to the bottom of and root out. And so we can't just pray and hope that God snaps his fingers and to relieve us of our anger. We have to do some hard work. We have to do some heart surgery. We have to do some introspection. If I'm being angry to the point of being unwilling to forgive, then I have to ask myself the question, what is it that I think I need in my life so much? What do I think is being withheld from me that I think I have to have in order to feel complete? There's that word again. Are you trying to complete yourself through your human effort? To have, a, to have hope, to have joy, to have peace in my life. What, what, what am I missing? What do I think I have to have? Usually deep anger is because of something we can identify like that. Maybe we want comfort above all else. Maybe that's what we really worship. And when our circumstances disrupt our comfort, we get angry, we get mad, and we get bitter at some other person who may have caused those circumstances to disrupt our comfort. Maybe we desperately want somebody else's approval. And so we, were worship, we are worshiping other people's opinions of us so that we are complete, Right? And we get angry when somebody thwarts our ability to gain the respect and popularity that we think we need to feel happy and peaceful and joyful and complete. Maybe we want control. Maybe that's what we're worshiping. We want to call the shots. We want to weigh in. We want to be influential because that's what will show everybody else that we are a person of worth and value. And so we get mad when we lose control that we feel that we're supposed to have. We get bitter when the control goes to somebody else because we lose the very thing that we can point other people to and say, this is why I should be loved. And do you see the root of anger? All kinds of them, right? It's because we're worshiping functional saviors, saviors called convenience and comfort and control and approval. They give us life and they give us salvation, but only for a few minutes. And the answer is is to repent of the need for those saviors. I don't need that temporary savior of control or acceptance or approval. The answer is to stop treating those things like God and remind ourselves of the finished work of Jesus because we forgot it. And that's why we got mad. And when I make my heart look again clearly at a Christ who was crucified for me and I see the crown of thorns and the nails and I understand what that sacrifice won for me that I could never win for myself, that it completed me in a way that I can never complete myself on my own. It won for me all the salvation I will ever need and I can replace those functional and temporary saviors with the Savior and the root of my anger will begin to wither. And that redirect back to Jesus is the same thing that happened to us when we first decided to follow Jesus. The solution to anger and to every other thing that takes us off track is to abandon systems of effort and to trust in Jesus and let His Spirit supply what you need to be complete. Everything we need, we already have in Jesus. One of the incredible claims of Christianity is something that Paul mentions here a few times, and it is the Spirit of God. 
One of the incredible claims of Christianity is that we have the Spirit of God in us if we follow Jesus in baptism. We are saved by grace through faith in baptism for good works. And the Spirit is not some impersonal force or wave or energy that we have uh, to tune into when we're on the right channel. It's a person who wants to be known. And if we want real spiritual power, Paul says it has nothing to do with how good you are or how much of your body you slice off. It's simple. You want real spiritual power, spend time getting to know the glory and the person that you already have within you because you followed Christ. The knowledge of what you have will take you to the completion that you're looking for. In the book, The Lord of the Rings, Frodo is given a coat of mail by his uncle Bilbo. Maybe you're familiar with the story. His uncle Bilbo gave him this coat of mail, which was uh, little ringlets of metal shaped into a coat. And Frodo took it for safety reasons, and he wore it underneath his other coats. And one day he was out, and he was walking with some of his companions, and they started talking about how rich his uncle was, that he was so rich. But, but there was one thing he had that was worth more than everything else he owned. He has a mithril coat. And in Tolkien's world, a mithril coat. Mithril was the most valuable and precious metal. It was a thousand times more valuable than gold and, and silver, and it was a hundred times stronger, and it was more beautiful when the light struck it. And this was an entire coat made of mithril. And they were talking about, do you know how much that's worth? That would be more, worth more than all the property in the Shire, which was the country that they lived in. And Tolkien writes this, that when Frodo heard all of this conversation, he suddenly grabbed his side and felt the coat that his uncle had given him and realized that underneath his old coat, he was walking around with a power greater than that of his entire country. When we, when we tell people the gospel, we tell them that they'll get the Holy Spirit. And this happened to me, it probably happened to you. Our natural response when we hear that as new Christians is, oh, that's nice. Wow, that's, that's like some sort of bonus add-on. It's, it's like a rebate for being a Christian, for following Jesus. But it's just that we've not yet had the Frodo moment. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, in the waters of baptism you were given the Spirit And underneath your flesh, you are walking around with something that has greater value than the whole world. You have something in you that will give you everything that you are looking for in life. It will complete you. It will allow you to be known fully and still loved because of what Christ has done on the cross. The Spirit says, you are a son, you are a daughter. You have the Spirit. And if you have that, why would you ever go back? Why would you come out of the locker room without socks, with your shoes untied? Keep them on. Double tie your shoes because you have the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we are saved when we stop trusting in our own moral efforts. And trust the work of Christ. 
And doing that creates a whole new, new motivation for everything that we do. Father, help us to understand that that trust, that acceptance of what Jesus has done for us is not just how we enter the kingdom, but it's how we continue in it. It's how we grow. So help us to not only be justified by the faith that we have in Christ, but also sanctified by the faith we have in Christ. Help us to never, ever leave the gospel behind. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to stand and we're going to sing a song. Maybe today you need to, you've come to the conclusion, hey, I don't have this spirit in my life. I kind of need that because I've tried a lot of different things and nothing is working. What we're offering you through Jesus is life, complete life, life to the full. If you need that, you come.